Thank you, Tom. Well, I preached my last sermon last week because I knew when I announced that I was going to be transitioning to this mission role that I wanted to spend October preaching a five-part series on the Reformation, a five-part series on the Reformation. So I preached my last sermon last Sunday, and now I'm going to begin my last series here at First Baptist, which is kind of uh, a pause because this will be the first time in almost 25 years I've not been a pastor preaching every Sunday. Um, and there are doubts as to how I'm going to handle that or concerns over how I'm going to handle that in my own household. Um, so I would, I'll just preach louder and longer probably when I get opportunities is the way that will come out. But um, I appreciate your prayers for us over the last couple of months as you've been made aware of things that are going on in our life and this new venture that we believe the Lord has led us to. We covet your prayers. We are thankful for your kindness to us and your love towards us over these four years and, and over these last several weeks. Um, we can't express that enough to you. Um, if you have questions, again, we want to be transparent. We'll answer any question you ask um, as clearly as we can. And if I can't answer it clearly, Mandy can do a better job sometimes at that than I can. So be sure to ask her <laughs> any questions you have, and she will be happy to answer those. Uh, no, seriously, I, I appreciate the four or so Sunday school classes that have allowed us to come and share with them and answer questions. If your Sunday school class wants me to step in one of these Sundays in October, I can take the whole time or I can take part of the time and answer any questions you have. You just let me know uh, or your small group or any, anything like that. I'll be glad to step in and, and share with you what we're doing and how you can pray for us and how you can help. Now, we're going to talk about the Reformation. You're wondering, maybe some of you are wondering, what on earth am I even talking about? Uh, but a little history will be intertwined in these because these are important points we're going to be looking at over the next five Sundays. The Protestant Reformation is recognized as beginning on October the 31st, 1517. October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther, who wrote the first song we sang this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door at Wittenberg in Germany. And his theses were, in English terms, in layman terms, basically 95 problems he has with the Catholic Church. And he didn't nail them to the door to be, you know, a, a vandal. In that day and in that time, that's how news got out. They didn't have Facebook, thank God. They, they took their news, they took their announcements, and instead of posting them on Facebook, they posted them on the church doors. And don't get any ideas. And Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the, to the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, to basically say, as a Catholic monk, as a priest, here's 95 problems I've got with the Catholic church. And he nailed these theses to the door, not in an effort to, to start a new denomination or to start a new movement. His desire was to reform the Catholic Church and say, listen guys, we've got a book that God has given us. We've had the scriptures that God has given us and we need to reevaluate what we are doing as a church and we need to be reformed back to scripture. Well, 
If you know anything about history, you know that the Catholic priests and the councils and the Pope didn't say, oh, good point, Martin, let's discuss that. No, instead they pushed back, they circled the wagons, and they put up a fight, and instead of things going away, they just heated up, and before you know it, this spark that was set here in Germany began to spread throughout Europe and into France, and, and the helm was taken there by a man named John Calvin, it continued to spread into Switzerland. The helm there is taken by Eurek Zwingli. In England, the helm is taken by William Tyndale. In Scotland, the helm is taken by John Knox. And it just continues to spread. And before you know it, this reformation that Luther wanted to see impact the Catholic Church became something that we know as the Protestant Reformation where we are protesting what the Catholic Church is saying and teaching and doing. And we pulled out of that and became our own denomination. And we became known as Protestants. And you'll probably find out as we go through this series that I'm not a big fan of the ecumenical movement. We left the Catholic Church on purpose. We don't need to go back. We don't need to go back. We need to continue reforming, continue going back to Scripture as our authority. Five statements distinguish the theology of the Reformation from the theology of the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century. And you may know of these statements as the five solas. The five solas. They're in Latin. For those of you Latin scholars out there, I'll probably pronounce some of these wrong. But the first that we're going to look at is sola scriptura. And these are going to get a little more heated each week, by the way. We're going to start easy. We're going to continue to build each week. But we're going to begin with sola scriptura. What is sola scriptura? Scripture alone. Scripture alone is our authority. Scripture alone is our inerrant guide. Scripture alone is what we go back to for truth. It's not a pope. It's not a priest. It's not a pastor. It's not a Sunday school teacher. It's not a church council. We have the scriptures that God has given us. And that's what we're held accountable to. That's where our authority is found, our final authority in the Scriptures. The second sola is solus Christus, which is Christ alone. We are justified before God by Christ alone. We are justified not because of who we are, but because of who He is. We are justified not because of what we have done, but because of what He has done. And hear me clearly, we are justified not because of what He has done and what we have done. We are not justified because of who He is and because of who we are. Ice cream? I could not pass that up, I'm sorry. I was in a very serious moment. If you're going to have that ringtone, you better bring ice cream with you from now on. That's all I'm going to say. I didn't eat breakfast this morning. What was I saying? (laughs) Solus Christus. It's not because of who Christ is and because of who we are, because of what Christ has done and what we have done, but it is Christ alone. He is our justification. Solus Christus. Sola fide. Faith alone. We receive the redemption that Christ has fully accomplished through faith alone, not faith plus baptism, 
Not faith plus works, not faith plus penance, not faith plus church attendance, not faith plus good works, but faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. All of our salvation from beginning to end is by grace and by grace alone. Free. And I'm going to tell you, if there's one of these sermons that I'm excited about, it's sola gratia. Because some of you that I've talked to over the four years, some of you that I've observed over the four years, some of you that I've discussed things with over the last four years are struggling with your salvation and where you stand with God. And I'm going to tell you, this all goes back to sola gratia. And when we get there, I think there's going to be some, some affirmation and some assurance and some release for some of you when it comes to your salvation. Number five, this is where we'll end. And I think this will be a fitting end. Soli Deo Gloria. Because it is all for the glory of God. It's not about us. It's not about our advancement. But it is about the glory of God. So over the, these five weeks... We're going to look at each of these five solas, beginning today with sola scriptura, which we clearly think is common sense, right? As Baptists today, we say we believe in Scripture alone as our authority, as our guide. So if you would, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin here. We're going to begin on some easy ground. But we're not beginning here because it's easy ground. We're beginning here because this is where we need to begin. All of the others... All of the other solas flow out of this one. And if they can't be found here in Scripture, then we don't need to discuss them, right? And they come out of Scripture. So we start here, sola scriptura. I want you to hear me very clearly. It wasn't Luther or Calvin or Zwingli or Tyndale or Knox or any of the others who reformed the church. It was Scripture that reformed the church. And that's what will continue to work in the church and work in our lives and reform us, is Scripture. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our sufficient authority. And why do we begin here? We begin here because Scripture is the greatest reformer. Scripture is the greatest reformer and Satan knows it. And Satan, a master schemer, knows that if he is going to have any hope of bringing down believers, if he's going to have any hope of bringing down the church, he's going to have to get our eyes off of Scripture. Which is why we see so many charlatans in the pulpit, maybe they take a Bible to the platform, but they don't use the Bible. The Bible doesn't, doesn't feed their sermons. Their sermons aren't rooted in Scripture. We have basically set aside Scripture. and We just want somebody to tell us what to think and tell us what to believe. Satan knows that if he has any hope of bringing us down, he will have to get our eyes off of the Word of God. That's how he did it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The first recorded question we find in Genesis chapter 3, Satan asks Eve, has God really said? Did God really say? And it was meant to cast doubt on God's word, and it worked, and Eve and Adam fell into sin. Scripture is a threat to the powers of darkness. Scripture is a threat 
to the powers of darkness. And that is why Satan spurred the Catholic Church of the 16th century to burn Bibles, to burn printing presses, and to burn Bible translators themselves by the hundreds. If Satan could keep the Bible out of the hands of common men, he could keep them ignorant, he could keep them blind, he could keep them deaf, and he could keep them dumb. William Tyndale of England said, I perceived how it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except that the Scripture was plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue. Sola Scriptura is critical because it puts parameters on what God has said. It puts a period at the end of Revelation, so to speak. And therefore, it is not Scripture plus the Catholic Church or Scripture plus baptism or Scripture plus Mary or Scripture plus penance or Scripture plus Mass or Scripture plus any of the sacraments, but it is Scripture alone. That's why when you hear a guy on TV say, well, God told me and gave me a special revelation. He's full of it. He's full of baloney. That's your only Greek word you're going to hear today is baloney. Is that Greek? There's no revelation outside of this revelation. Scripture alone. 2 Peter chapter 1 affirms the primacy of the Scriptures. Beginning in verse number 16. Listen to what the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Peter said. And this is almost comical because the Apostle Peter is who the Catholic Church said all of their popes seceded from. All of the popes came down from Peter. They were all tied back to Peter. And this secession of Peter. And here's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. Let's just stop there and realize that Peter is an eyewitness. Peter is an eyewitness of the majesty of Jesus Christ. And he says, we saw this, we heard this, we experienced this on the mountain with him. And the mountain he is referring to is the Mount of Transfiguration. If you go back to Matthew chapter 17, in verses 1 through 8, here's what Peter is thinking back to in his mind. Here's what Peter is imagining as he's writing this, this second letter to the churches. He goes back in his mind to this unforgettable moment in Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, where six days later Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother. So it wasn't just Peter, it was Peter, James, and John. And he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. In other words, Jesus took on a glorified state. They didn't see him as they had been seeing him, walking along like a normal man, appearing in human form. He goes on the mountain, and he begins to shine, and his garments are 
are changed to white, and he's, a, he's in a glorified state. But they don't just see Jesus. In verse 3, it said, Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So they don't only see Jesus transfigured before them, but they see Moses who always represented the law of God. And they saw Elijah, who represented the prophets of God. So basically, they see the Old Testament with Jesus. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, and Jesus here on the mountain together. And Peter said to Jesus in verse 4, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I'll make a tabernacle for the law, I'll make a tabernacle for the prophets, and I'll make a tabernacle for you, Jesus. And in verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That's familiar, isn't it? Because didn't we hear that at Jesus' baptism? And now he's on the mountain. We hear those words again, but there's something else added. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Wait a minute. He didn't say listen to them? We've we've been building everything on the law. We've been building everything on the prophets. And the voice of God says, this is my son. Listen to him. It is as if God is saying, you want the word of God? He's right here before you. You want to know how to interpret the law of God? Listen to Jesus. You want to know how to interpret the prophets? Listen to Jesus. You want the law and the prophets fulfilled? Look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. When the disciples heard this in verse 6, they fell face down to the ground and they were terrified. Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. They saw with their eyes. They heard with their ears. They were personal witnesses. But look at what happens back in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. What does Peter say next? He says, we saw with our eyes Jesus transfigured before us. We saw Moses. We saw Elijah. We heard with our ears the voice from heaven affirming that Jesus is his son and that we should listen to Jesus. We experience this personally. But verse 19 says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The prophetic word of God is even more sure than Peter's own eyes. The prophetic word of God is even more sure than Peter's own ears. The prophetic word of God is even more sure than Peter's experience. Or John's. Or James's. John wrote in 1 John 1, 1 to 3, what was from the beginning. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship and indeed Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, we're telling you what we've seen. We're telling you what we've heard. We're telling you what we've experienced. Peter says, the prophetic word 
is more sure. The prophetic word is more sure. So here we have Peter saying, I know what I saw, I know what I heard, I know what I experienced on that mountain. But if it conflicts with the prophetic word, I'm going to stick with the word. And we know that what Peter saw and heard and experienced did become the Word, right? It became the written New Testament, the written Scriptures that, of the New Testament that we still hold to. But at the time, Peter is clearly subjecting himself to the written Word of God. There's nothing in the New Testament that conflicts with the Old Testament. There's a new covenant that makes the Old Covenant obsolete, but there's no conflict there. Peter submits himself to the prophetic word of God. And that's what we have to do as well. We have to submit ourselves to the sure prophetic word of God. I can wax eloquent for 40 minutes or 45 minutes or longer every Sunday. You can take notes on that. Maybe even be impacted by that. But you don't submit yourself to anything or anyone outside of the parameters of the word of God, no matter how clever it may sound. I think this is a very profound statement by John Calvin. And I want you to hear what he says, because he shows the difference of viewpoint and Scripture between the Catholic Church and the, and the Reformers. He said, the difference between us, the Reformers, and the Papists, or the Catholics, is that they do not think that the Church can be the pillar of the truth, which Paul writes to Timothy and says, the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The pillar and the protector of the truth. He said the papists do not think that the church can be the pillar of the truth unless she presides over the word of God. So here's how the, the Catholic church interpreted the pillar and the buttress of the truth. They say, let us tell you what to believe about this book. Let us tell you what you should, what you should think. Let us tell you how you should interpret these things. You don't need the Scriptures in your language. We've got them in Latin, and we will handle them, and we will protect them from the common layman, from the common plowman getting a hold of the Scriptures and becoming dangerous. We need, to, we need to oversee the Word. But listen to what Calvin goes on to say. He says, we, on the other hand, assert that it is because she reverently, the church reverently subjects herself to the Word of God, that the truth is preserved by her and passed on to others by her hands. In other words, while the Catholics were saying, we need to keep our grip on the Scriptures so that we can make sure it doesn't get out of hand out here in order to protect the integrity of the Scriptures, the Reformers said, no, we need to get under the Scriptures and that's how we protect the integrity of the Scriptures. Do you see the difference? When we say sola scriptura, Scripture alone... We're saying we know what our eyes say, we know what our ears say, we know what our experience is, and that may all be good, but the final authority is the prophetic Word of God. And as we subject ourselves to the Word of God, we are a pillar and a buttress of the truth. It doesn't need us to protect it and guard it in a sense of us lording it over the Word. No, we need to get under it, and then we proclaim it and protect it as the truth. Peter goes on in verse 20, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 
Peter's saying here that this is not just some guy making up a story. This is not some guy writing down wise sayings that catch the ears of his hearers. This is inspiration from God. The writers are carried along by the Holy Spirit like a sailing ship is carried along by the wind. For Peter, it was as if the writers of Scripture raised their spiritual sails and allowed the Holy Spirit to fill fill them with this powerful breath of revelation as they penned His divine words. This is inspiration. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Do you you understand what he just said in this verse? He said, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. All the Scripture is inspired by God. And all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for most good works that he needs to do. Is that what it says? It's no, but for every good work, for every good work, God's Word is sufficient. It is sufficient to instruct you, correct you, and train you for righteousness in church life. That's what sola scriptura means. It means that we need to constantly be looking at what we do in this church, what we say in this church, how we function in this church, not based on opinions, not based on preferences, not based on I like this, I don't like this, this irritates me, this doesn't irritate me, but back to the scriptures. The scriptures make us Right and equipped for every good work in church life. But not just church life. The scriptures are sufficient to instruct you, correct you, and train you for righteous family life. Do you want to know how to be a father? How to be a mother? How to be a wife? How to be a husband? How to be a teenager? How to be a child? How to be a senior adult? How to be a widow? How to be a widower? How to be an older man in the church? How to be a younger man? If you want to know, where do you go? You go to the Scriptures, and it shows you how to live a righteous family life. We want to go to the bookstore and pick off a bestseller. We want to blog. We want to type in our question to Google. But if we want to know the real answer, we've got to get into the Scriptures. The Scriptures are what is, will be what teach us to be a biblical church and a biblical family. These Scriptures are sufficient to instruct you, to correct you, and to train you for righteous decisions of every kind. You want to know where to go to school, whether you should go to school, what you should do with your life, how you should handle your money, how you should dress, fill in the blank. Every answer can be found In Scripture, it is sufficient to adequately equip you for every good work there is this one book. Sola Scriptura means that only Scripture is our sufficient authority. We do not need a pope to tell us anything for God. We do not need a priest to tell us what to believe or what to do. We have God's Word written directly to us. Listen, you don't even need... A preacher. The Bible calls for elders and pastors and teachers and leaders. And he's gifted people for that. But I'm going to tell you something. If you find yourself stranded on a desert island and you've got the word of God, the Holy Spirit can speak to you through the scriptures. 
Some of you just heard me say, well, I don't have to go back to church at all. I don't need a preacher. I don't need church. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying, God doesn't need me to speak to you. He has His Word. He's already spoken. He's already spoken. We have the Word of God. John Knox of Scotland said, The Scriptures of God are my only foundation and substance in all matters of weight and importance. This book is where we must get not only our sermons and Sunday school lessons from, but our worldview and our culture. When confronted with the challenges of our day related to marriage, gender, entertainment standards, we must begin and end, begin and end with the Bible. What does the Bible say about that? Sola Scriptura. When confronted with decisions related to education, to college, to careers, we must begin and end with the Bible. What does the Bible say about that? Sola Scriptura. When confronted with clothing style and choice, entertainment preferences, and stewardship of our time and our resources, we must begin and end with the Bible. What does the Bible say about that? Sola Scriptura. And until... Until we start going to the Bible with our every question, with our every decision, and letting it dictate for us how we should think, how we should live, how we should act, we will not be where God wants us to be as individuals, as a family, as a church, or as a community. But as we continue to go back to the Scriptures, we're going to find ourselves stranger and stranger in this world that we live in. But if we believe sola scriptura, we need to act like and live like we believe sola scriptura. Martin Luther didn't really have a lot of tact. And sometimes he was reckless. So when he nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg and did not get a favorable hearing and debate and discussion he just kept writing and as he kept writing he was called to the diet of worms worms not worms in the ground it's a place in Germany worms he's put on trial there his works are put before him and he's told to recant to take it all back, to say I was wrong, I didn't mean what I wrote, I was misguided, I didn't understand, or face the consequences, and the subtle threat there was, if you don't recant, we're going to burn you at the stake like we've done others. Well, Martin Luther seems to quake a bit and says, can I think about it? <laughs> and they put him in a cell for the night and said, you'll give us an answer tomorrow, and it's said, we don't know how much of this is legend and how much is true, but it's said that Luther battled Satan through the night as Satan accused him and attacked him. The next day he is brought before the council and they're asked, they ask him, are you ready to recant? And he gives his famous quote. He says, unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. 
My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. May we have the same conviction. And may our lives prove it. May our souls and our consciences be captive to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say about you this morning? What does it say about how you are ordering your life and how you're ordering your days and how you're making your decisions? What does it say about the trajectory your life is on? What does it say about your relationship to your parents or to your children or to your spouse or to your church or to your community or to your God? Listen, we can, we can walk down an aisle. We can take the preacher by the hand. We can repeat a prayer after him. He can fill out a card for us, baptize us, tell us we're good. We can go through all the Southern Baptist motions or all the Catholic motions or all the Church of Christ motions or all the motions you want to go through. But what does Scripture say about you? What does Scripture say about where you stand with Him? Scripture says you can do all that you can do and all you want to do and it will never be enough because our holy God demands holiness from us. Our perfect God demands perfection from us. Our sinless God demands sinlessness from us. Our righteous God demands righteousness from us. So no matter how many boxes you check, no matter how many good works you you try to pile on your side of the scale, you will never, ever be good enough for God because we have all sinned and come short of God's glorious standard. We have all sinned and fall short of perfection. We have all sinned and fall short of holiness and righteousness. We've all sinned and fall short of what it takes to be made right and to be right before God. God would be perfectly just to send us all to hell the first time we cross the line. Because of His grace and His mercy and His love, He came to this earth and He lived the perfect, sinless, righteous, holy life that He requires and demands of us. He didn't send us a list of do's and don'ts. Don't look at this as a list of do's and don'ts. He didn't send us a list of do's and don'ts and say, do these things and don't do these things and maybe you can climb high enough to reach heaven. No, He came down from heaven, humbled Himself, taking on the form of a servant, and He did all the do's. And He refrained from all the don'ts. And He lived the perfect, sinless, spotless, righteous, holy life that He requires of us. And then He went to the cross, and on the cross, He paid for our sin on the cross as He shed His perfect blood on the cross. It doesn't just cover our sin, it cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness. And he was buried and he rose so that you here this morning can stop trying to check Baptist boxes or Catholic boxes or Lutheran boxes or Church of Christ boxes or your parents' boxes or whoever's boxes that they've concocted for you. And you can say this morning, you know what, Jesus, he's already checked all those boxes. And He is offering to give me His 
checked boxes of righteousness and perfection and holiness and purity for all of my failures and all of my sin and all of my iniquity and all of my transgression. And I want to take that trade this morning. I want to give him my sin and I want to take his righteousness. And listen, if you do that, if you, if you repent of your sin and you put your faith and your trust in Christ and you want to make that exchange this morning, listen, you have the hope. You have the promise that he will make you right and he will take your sin and you can have peace with God. You can have peace with God. That's our hope for you. That's our prayer for you. That's what the Scriptures teach us. That's what the Scriptures point us to. Do you know Him? What does the Scripture say? Sola Scriptura. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace, Your mercy, Your love. We thank You for Your Word and that it is our sufficient, soul, inerrant, infallible authority. Help us to see what your scriptures say about us and the way we live. What your scriptures say about us and how we function as individuals and families and as a church and in our community. And most importantly, help us to see what your scriptures say about us and where we stand with you. God, if there's a person here who's been trying to check every box that somebody else has put together for them, I pray that you would help them to see that Jesus has already done it. That person who's trying to do enough penance. I pray that you would show them that Jesus has paid for their sin in full. And I pray that you would grant them repentance and faith this morning and assurance before you. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.